Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at bluenile.com. And remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. We have a very special offer for Black Friday. For just £99, you can get an entire year of access to New Scientist. That's a subscription for £99, and it's the best offer of the year. So do go to newscientist.com slash Black Friday to get this deal. Three, two, one. Boosters in ignition. And liftoff of Artemis 1. We rise together back to the moon and beyond. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. This is the show that brings you a curated selection of the essential stories of the week. Our aim is to feed your curiosity. I'm your host, Penny Sarche. And I'm Rowan Hooper. Welcome to the show. This week, we're joined by New Scientist journalists Madeleine Cuff in Egypt, Leah Crane in New York, Alice Klein in Australia and Sam Wong in London. What a team. Welcome all. Hello. Hello. On the show this week, we report on the launch of the most powerful rocket ever made, That's what you heard at the start of the show there. And we discuss how to find wormholes should you wish to leave this region of space-time. Helpful. Um, We also have the oldest known home cooking and a visit to some organisms who have been farming for over 45 million years. (laughs) Uh, And talking of cooking, we have a fascinating story about the consequences of what you put into your mouth on what comes out the other end. Yuck. Mm, Okay. (laughs) Um, But we'll start with the latest from Egypt, where negotiations at the COP27 climate summit have reached a critical point. Rowan spoke to our climate reporter, Madeleine Cuff, from Sharm el-Sheikh. Now, I want to ask about the negotiations, but let's start with Lula, because president-elect of Brazil, Lula da Silva, when he appeared, it was like a rock star entrance, wasn't it? We've got some chanting that you recorded. Yes, so that chanting was for an hour before he was supposed to speak. So that kind of gives you a sense of how long the excitement was building for him. There was a crowd gathering outside the room waiting to hear from him. I mean, it was really like a celebrity had come to town and it sort of injected a bit of excitement into this cop that frankly has been a bit listless and lacking the kind of star power that really gets the crowd going. And so Lula Mm. kind of brought a bit of that and he really told people what they wanted to hear, which was that protection of the Amazon is back on the agenda and that Brazil's new government will will put climate action at the heart of its agenda, which was kind of like the greatest hits for for a COP audience to hear. But what about any substantive decisions or pledges that, that he or others have made so far? 
So he came armed with quite a few announcements, actually. So he stressed that he would reverse the damage done to the Amazon um, under the current president, Jair Bolsonaro. And part of that would be to end all deforestation, not just in the Amazon, but across Brazil by the end of the decade. He said he would strengthen environmental ministries, which have been weakened under Bolsonaro's regime, and that he would create a new ministry for indigenous peoples, which are kind of at the forefront of protecting particularly the Amazon. And he also said that he would like to host a summit in the Amazon next year, that he would make the G20, which is due to be held in Brazil in a couple of years' time. Climate action would be central to that meeting. And then finally, he said that he would like to host a COP in the Amazon, which Mm. everybody was thrilled at the idea of a trip to Brazil for for one of the COP conferences. Okay, and what about the resolution, you know, the the treaty that we're going to get out of this? Because we're speaking on Thursday. This COP is supposed to finish with the treaty announced tomorrow. Obviously, that never happens at COPs. It's always going to run over. But where are we at? What's the latest on the draft treaty? First thing this morning, a new draft text dropped, which has ballooned to 20 pages and Mm. just includes everything that basically anyone has kind of said about what might be in this. So there's been quite a lot of criticism of the way the Egyptian presidency has handled this and that it hasn't kind of had a grip on the process and forced those options to be whittled down. So there's certainly a long, long way to go before countries have found some sort of agreement on what should be in this final text and but there's going to be a bit of a political showdown, I think, at the end of the summit. Um, And there's lots of fears that the way this has been handled to kind of force all of those decisions to be made at the very last minute will just mean that it reaches the lowest common denominator and that the the signal of ambition that comes out of this is is not going to be great. Yeah, I mean, people are trying to desperately keep the 1.5 target on the text in some way, right? And, And not have this be the cop where that has finally gone. Is that going to be possible, do you think? There was quite a lot of concern earlier this week that that might not happen. But given that the G20 communique that came out of Bali, I think yesterday, was very clear and it it followed the wording of the Glasgow Climate Pact and and reiterated the G20's commitment to limiting warming to 1.5 degrees, that sends hopefully a very strong signal here to negotiators in Sham that that should stay in. So it looks like at the moment that is safer than we first thought that language around 1.5 degrees. Well, that would be something. The other thing that I noticed was the the lack of language about a uh, phase down of fossil fuels. So we had that in COP26, didn't we, when there was an agreement on phasing down fossil fuels. But um, that looks like a sticking point here. Yes, it's interesting because I think quite a lot of people were relatively surprised at the draft that dropped this morning, which we should say isn't really a draft in the conventional sense. It's more a long list of what might go in it. So there's still a lot lot to go through before this becomes any kind of final text. But there isn't anything on fossil fuels in there. But Mm. what a proposal that kind of has been circling, which was made by India, was to build on the language of phasing down coal, rather than naming coal specifically, they would say phasing down all fossil fuels. And that, I mean, that's kind of gathered steam almost, I think, probably taken Indian negotiators by surprise that um, the I think the EU has backed it, the UK, the US has backed that proposal as well. And so you might kind of see a surprise addition on that. But 
I think some countries are, are really keen to make sure that the language says, yes, phase down all fossil fuels, but really calling out coal specifically because coal is such a polluting fuel. It's seen as quite important to tackle that one first. All right, look, we'll let you go. We'll talk next week when when this has all been signed off. But I wonder if it's possible to to sum up the mood of it. I mean, what about protesters there? What's been the general feel? Has there been frustration, anger? Is there still hope left here? I would say the mood in camp is <laughs> tired and deflated. I don't think this has been a cop that has really offered huge hope and has galvanised climate campaigners. I think that there's, you know, obviously there's been a lot of reporting around the absence of protesters around Sharm el-Sheikh and in the summit. So I think that has really dampened proceedings, if I'm honest, the the mm. kind of lack of the protest voice and the energy that they bring to proceedings, coupled with the the logistical hiccups of organising this COP. There's, you know, there's been shortages of water, toilets have been closed, there's been food issues. Um, and so I don't think that has helped the mood, particularly among negotiators who are doing really, really long hours um, yeah. and trying their best. So obviously there's still a lot of hope for a positive outcome. There's a lot still to play for um, and a lot of work to get through before this summit closes. But I would say it doesn't have a kind of huge upswelling of optimism from it in the same way that maybe a lot of people left Glasgow with a kind of renewed sense of hope that that things could change. Let's turn to space now. Leo, we want to talk about wormholes, but let's start with the Artemis mission. We discussed it on the show back in August, and we'll put a link to that episode in our show notes. But it has now finally launched to the moon. Yeah, it did. I had absolutely zero faith it was going to happen. But despite having no weather, a hurricane and 100 mile per hour winds on the launch pad, uh, it still went up and uh, everything went super smoothly. So, Leia, can you remind us where's it going and when will it get there? So it is going into orbit around the moon and it's going to get there around Tuesday. And it's going to orbit for about six days and then head into a higher orbit and then back home. Isn't it going to be like the the forerunner of a of a potential lunar gateway orbiting space station? Yeah, it's really the first step for a lot of different things um, because it's the first of the Artemis missions. So it's the first step for this moon orbiting space station that NASA has planned. It's the first step for sending people back to the surface of the moon. It's the first step for in the distant future, potentially a permanent human presence on the moon. Well, talking of the future, maybe distant future, then uh, let's talk about wormholes. Because, you know, for any interstellar traveller in the far future, you're going to perhaps want to use this as a transport hub to get to another (laughs) region of space-time. Have we ever found a a wormhole? Uh, We have not. Uh, (laughs) We have. And you'll hear about it if we ever do. Uh, (laughs) But it... um, we might have a way to look for them because a wormhole should look very similar to a regular black hole. If the black holes that we've already seen and taken direct pictures of were wormholes, we wouldn't be able to know that there. So we could well have already seen them, but we just don't know. And a group of astronomers have now figured out how the light would look different from a wormhole to a regular black hole so that if we saw a wormhole, we could know what it is. Okay, Leah, let's just go back to basics and tell us what the difference is between a wormhole and a black hole. 
So the difference between a wormhole and a black hole is that at the center of a black hole is a singularity, which is basically an infinitely dense point. And a wormhole doesn't have a singularity, so things can travel through it. And the singularity is what makes stuff not able to come out of the black hole. So mm. light could, in theory, come out of a wormhole. Um, Ooh, this model okay. in particular used what they call a traversable wormhole, which means you could go through it. So this is so far just a theoretical proposal for ways to distinguish between a black hole and a wormhole. But is there an, are there any prospects to start rolling this out and, and using it to search for them? I don't think there's any official plans, but one thing it does do is tell us what kind of data we would need in order to distinguish so we can figure out once we have that data, which some of it could be taken by the Event Horizon Telescope, once we have it, then we can look at it and try and distinguish. This episode is sponsored by Amazon Future Engineer, a comprehensive childhood to career program to inspire and educate young people in STEM. Why not inspire a young person you know by helping them take part in the Alexa Young Innovator Challenge, a new coding competition with a £2,500 prize. Search Alexa Young Innovator Challenge online to find out more, and we'll add a link to that in our show notes. And now a message from our Discovery team. Three cabins have just become available on the new scientist Discovery Cruise around Hawaii with evolutionary biologist and author Richard Dawkins. And it's literally departing in a few weeks on the 2nd of December. Explore volcanoes, abundant rare wildlife on land and in sea, and stunning landscapes. Then enjoy thought-provoking talks from the one and only Richard Dawkins in the evenings. This is a one-off and not to be repeated. Full details at newscientist.com slash tours. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at BlueNile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Sam, welcome back to the pod. Uh, you're the food and cooking guru at New Scientist, and this week we have a story about the very invention of cooking. Yes, so uh, obviously this was a, a huge moment in human evolution. Uh, cooking makes food more digestible, it kills pathogens, it means you don't have to spend as much time foraging and chewing. So some biologists think that cooking is what enabled us to grow big brains around 2 million years ago since it gave us more calories and other primates have to spend loads of the time foraging and eating. And what's the latest then about when exactly cooking might have started? Presumably the key step is, you know, humans needed to gain control of fire and, and use it sophisticatedly. Yeah, so this is very controversial. So although, although there's this hypothesis that humans started cooking two million years ago and that let us grow big brains, we're lacking in the evidence to, to show that humans were actually uh, cooking 
way back then. So in settlements from the last 400, 500,000 years, we often see the remains of hearths where the fire has burnt the ground. So we know that um, our ancestors were making fires in that time. And there have been hints of, of much older fires. So there was a study that we reported on a little while ago from Kenya that found hearths from a site that was 1.5 million years ago, and they found burnt animal bones nearby. So they think that uh, humans may have been barbecuing meat back then. But we can't be sure that these humans were actually cooking meat. They might have been just throwing the bones on the fire. Well, that might have been how it was discovered in the first place, right? Mm. If people chucked bones onto a fire and then smelled the nice smell and, and went and yanked it back out. Yeah. But what's the, what's the new claim? So the new claim this week, um, there was a study that looked at a 780,000-year-old settlement in Israel, a place called uh, Gesher Benet Yaakov, and they found fish teeth uh, near some what looked like hearths, and they studied the sizes of the crystals in the tooth enamel using X-ray diffraction. This can reveal if the material has been exposed to high temperatures. So they did some experiments with other fish teeth, heating them to different temperatures, looking at the crystal sizes, and they compared them with the ancient teeth. And by doing this, they found out that these fish teeth they found have been exposed to temperatures of 200 to 500 degrees, which is not as hot as if the fish had been directly exposed to fire. So they concluded that the fish were probably cooked in some sort of earthen oven. Mm, so that's uh, really quite interesting, isn't it? They're not just burning stuff directly, but it's kind of evidence that the food was deliberately cooked. Like it's not an accidental or they just threw something into a fire. It suggests they built an actual oven. Yeah, it does suggest quite sophisticated control of fire and, and cooking skills. But, you know, it's not definitive. So maybe the teeth were, were just dropped near the edge of a fire or in the dying embers. And that's why they didn't get quite so hot. But it does kind of, uh, yeah, add to the, the collection of evidence we have about when cooking started. And of course, the other big question is which human species was the first to, to start cooking? Mm. So the age of this site uh, is around when Homo erectus was alive. They haven't actually found any human remains at this site, but based on the stone tools and the date, they think this might have been Homo erectus. And if that's true, then that's that's just really quite advanced cognitive abilities for Homo erectus to be controlling fire and building ovens. So it's a really interesting uh, piece of evidence, and uh, we shall keep an eye out for any um, further discoveries like this. Now, Penny mentioned at the start of the show how this week I went to see a farm run by some animals who've been farming in this way for over 45 million years. So it's obviously not a farm run by humans. Let's take a look. This here, is that like a mass of ants or is that dirt? Is that like soil? <laughs> no, that is in, indeed to a large extent a cemetery, if you so will. So wow. when, when we go inside the climate chamber where we keep these nests, you will see that the nests are quite big. So both of these colonies probably at the moment have a, a size of about four to 500,000 individuals. So it's a lot of ants. And then they do housekeeping. Uh, and much like us, we wouldn't want to have dead bodies in our uh, living room. They don't want to have dead bodies or other detritus in, in the living room. So they bring them out. Okay. Uh, and they're clean. Okay, you'll have gathered that I'm looking at an ant colony. It's a city of about 600,000 ants, all of them genetically identical, apart from a single queen. And these are leafcutter ants. They're true farmers. They collect leaves from outside the nest, chop them into pieces and bring them back underground to where they feed the leaf fragments to fungi that they grow for food. To do this, the colony has many different specialist castes of ant and they vary in size over two orders of magnitude, which means the biggest ones are a hundred times bigger than the smallest. Here's David Labont, who runs this colony at Imperial College London. 
Yeah, so one of the things that we're interested in is that they're very different in size. So you see some that are rather tiny, and yeah. there's some that are even smaller than that. And you see some that are really rather big. You just pointed out the big soldier that looks yeah. like... Yeah, and they would draw blood if they bite you. So they're yes, quite big and strong. jaws on it, yeah. And in social insects in general, you often see some form of variation in size, and the most typical one would be between queen and workers. But in these ants, they have taken that to some form of extreme, if you will, because they have an almost continuous size distribution across very different sizes. Yeah. And one of the things that we're very interested in is why is it helpful for the colony? Why would they have that? They can actually bite harder than you would expect just from their size difference. So you can see how they have very big heads. And yeah. indeed, that species is called cephalotis, which means big heads. Yeah. And they, the heads are entirely full with muscle. A significant fraction of the body mass is just the muscle in the head yeah. for closing the mandibles and for cutting. Then you see very small ones. They might yeah. often be too weak to actually cut. Yeah. But there's some evidence that they're they tiny, might... That's tiny, tiny right. ones, aren't yeah, they? They're absolutely super small. But there's some evidence that these very small ones may sometimes protect other ants that are carrying leaves back to the nest from attacks, yeah. phoretic flies. Yeah, I've seen them like riding on that's the right. fragment. That's yeah, right. So hitchhikers. Wa- waving their jaws out. Yeah. That's right. So to avoid attacks of other, of other insects that might be harmful. So there's some evidence for that, but there's also a bit of controversy. Yeah. And then there's also evidence that if you would give them leaves of different properties, so much like cutting a steak is different to cutting a, a melon, say, for us, um, leaves have very different properties. Some are very soft, like rose petals, and some are very leathery, say, like bramble. And then there's some evidence that indicates that they then send different size distributions out to these leaves. Yeah. And we're indeed interested in that and understanding how they regulate that size distribution, how they decide what sizes to send out. The leaves are processed outside and then returned to the nest. Now, in the jungles of the Americas, that's underground. But here in the lab in London, it's in a controlled climate chamber that simulates a warm underground nest. They bring them through these tubes all the way back to the colony. And then you see this is the Atacephalotus colony, this is the Volumbidary colony. Okay, so we're in the climate-controlled room now. So this is effectively underground That's right. from the point of view <laughs> of the ant. So for them, yeah. it's effectively underground. Maybe you can see here, this is a small sub-colony that we're setting up for separate experiments. So this is a colony without its queen. And you can see here, this is the fungus. So all wow. this white structure you see is the fungus. And they would incorporate leaves that they bring back into that fungus. I can see where they can find some examples for you. Maybe if we move over here. The cellulose in plants is difficult to digest, which is why cows need four stomachs to do it. So the ants externalise this digestion and get the fungi to do it for them. It's funny, isn't it? Because I don't know what I imagined, but... At first, I thought that was like foam, foam packaging. I was like, but that's the whole fungus. It looks like, and all those holes in it, in the structure of the fungus, are they, is that where they fed from it or is that for them to access it? Um, I don't know whether that is, whether they specifically build it that way or whether that's the, how the fungus also grows, but they have all their brood in there as well. And the queen lives somewhere in one of these boxes as well, right? right? So this nest has all the brood that the queen's laying. This nest has the food, this nest has the fungus. Incredible. Uh, if you will, this is an externalized resource, right? Because um, in many ants or social insects, you might also just carry extra food in your stomach and then feed it with nestmates via trophallaxis, so you regurgitate food. And here, that energy is basically all in the fungus, if you so will, right? So this is an excess energy that the colony can yeah, use when they want to increase size and build more and more workers. And you can, for example, here you see, this is a, an outside box of the nest, and you see it's full of soldiers. Yeah. <laughs> They're very gnarly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that's a very expensive for these colonies, right? Because a very small worker might be two orders of magnitude lighter in weight than a very big one. So making the big ones is expensive. Losing mm. them is, is expensive energetically. Um, so normally what you would find is that the full range of worker sizes is only produced when colonies have reached a certain size. And that has led to the idea that maybe smaller workers are more generalist. 
and then when you get larger and larger, you can afford some risk and you make more specialists. Yeah, but just like a human society. Quite right, yeah. quite right. Yeah, so you, you see they have all these big boxes full of fungus, and in the wild, that would have to be digged out of soil. So right. they move huge volumes of soil around and then change the nutrient composition. So throughout the Neotropics, they're considered one of the most important ecosystem engineers because they strongly influence soil composition and soil turnaround. And the fungus, does it grow in the, in the wild, as it were, or does it only grow with, in symbiosis with these ants? It's only really found in symbiosis with these ants. And in the lab, David is also able to measure the amount of force that's produced by the mandibles of the different sized ants and then figure out how efficient the different workers are at their jobs. Because this is an insect species where the behaviour is dominated by a very clear biomechanical task. They forage leaf fragments from the colony surroundings. So we're trying to understand how much of the behaviour we can explain from biomechanics. So if an ant size is particularly good at cutting a particular leaf, is that ant size doing that task? And then ultimately, of course, the question that then would emerge or follow up from that is, well, if we can show these correlations, that that has implications for why they have all these different sizes, and maybe also for why some other ant species that don't have that particular task distribution do not. So once they've picked up their, their leaf, they're returning it to the nest, um, how do they know which box to go in in, your, in their nest? Yeah, this is something that would often fascinates humans because we're sort of used to very centralized organization systems. So in a, if you were a society like this, we're expecting someone's giving orders or directives and then people just know what to do. Yeah. And the answer doesn't work that way. It's all delocalized information and it's instead transmitted via, for example, pheromones that are laid down on trails or exchanges like ants often bump into each other and touch antennas. Yeah, I saw them just doing that. Yeah. That's right. So they exchange some form of inform- information with that as well. Yeah. And how exactly these decisions are then made locally or how they translate into emergence of actual meaningful behavior is, is a very challenging and interesting question in social insects in particular. Well, because when they get back inside, some parts of the fungus will need resource more than others, right? And the, the ants will need to know that and know which one to prioritize, right? And to take the... And so they're following... They're basically following a trail. Yeah, so the pheromone trails would play a role. There may well be other elements as well. Mm. Um, and how exactly decentralized information can lead to coordinated behavior is one of the big challenges in studying behavior of social insects. Mm. Honestly, I could have watched that for hours. What a fascinating society. It's a complex, decentralized society. It's amazing stuff. And thank you to David Lebon to Imperial College London for showing me those ant farms. And we've got another story on a different kind of ant farm in the mag this week. In this one, they're farming plant crops rather than fungi. And I'll put a link in the show notes. Sometimes on the pod, we save the difficult or, you know, really technical science for the last story on the show, just so that you're warmed up for it and feeling limber. I guess we could say we've done something similar this week. This is a story about why, when you've been to the toilet, some poos float and others sink. Mm. Um, Is it because of how much fat is in your diet or fibre? That's definitely one that I'd heard. Or perhaps it's related to gas. Uh, To find out, Rowan spoke to our reporter Alice Klein about a new study that has finally answered this age-old question. Hi, Alice. Now, I'm going to approach this story in the spirit of the late Deborah James, and she was known as Bowel Babe on Twitter. Uh, and she died of bowel cancer earlier this year. But she did so much to destigmatize talking about poo. So um, yeah, you know, I remember as a child, 
wondering why some poos float and some sink and actually trying to correlate it to what I'd eaten. But I didn't do this in a very rigorous scientific way. So what is the what is the answer? Well, before I tell you the answer, um, oh. I thought I might just give you a little bit of the backstory because I found it really interesting. So research on this question actually started about half a century ago in the early 1970s when this medical student called Bill Duan in Minnesota was just chatting one day to his supervisor, a gastroenterologist called Michael Levitt, and he told him that his poos always floated in toilet water. Always. Now, always yeah. floated. Yeah. Now, at that time, apparently, it was assumed that if you had floating poos, it was because you had some kind of disorder that meant you couldn't absorb fat properly. So you ended up with all this fat in your poos that made them very buoyant. Right. But then he was this young medical student, Bill, with no apparent digestive issues, and he still always had floating poo, so it didn't really fit. So they tested his poos? Yes. So <laughs> two hours after they had this discussion, Bill <laughs> produced one of his signature floaters, and they put it in a pressurized flask that forced all the gas out. And this made his poo sink to the bottom of the flask, which proved that it must be the gas in his poos that was causing them to float, not fat. All right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so then they repeated this experiment with floating poos collected from 12 other people, and they found that they all sank too when they were degassed, even when there were these really fatty poos. Yeah. So really this proved <laughs> really fatty poos. So yeah. this proved that the reason some poos float is because of their gas content, not their fat content as had previously been assumed. And I actually found all this out from chatting to Michael Levitt himself, who's now he's actually about to turn 88, but he's still considered the world expert on this topic. <laughs> the world expert on on whether poos float or sink. <laughs> yeah. Um and so, okay, they, they found that, that some poos float because of their gas content, not the fat. And that, that's really interesting, actually, to me in particular. Well, you know, vegetarians and vegans, have a, we have a lot of gas in our diet because of all the beans we eat. Um, is, <laughs> so is that where it comes from? Well, this is where this latest study comes in, explaining where the, where the gas comes from. Right. And it also came around by chance, actually, in a cancer research lab that also happens to be in Minnesota. The head of the lab, a scientist called Raj Kanan, just one day was idly looking at some mouse poo pellets that his research fellow had collected for a microscopy study. And he noticed that some were floating and some were sinking in the liquid that they were being stored in. And he worked out that all the ones that were sinking were from mice that had been specially bred to have no gut bacteria, um, what we call germ-free mice. And this got him thinking, okay, are gut bacteria required to make poos float? And if so, is this because gut bacteria often produce a lot of gas that could get trapped in poo as it passes through? Hey, this is this is starting to make sense. What a what a good observational scientist. Um, so yeah, go on. What happened? Yeah, so he wanted to find out more. So they took some germ-free mice, the ones that had sinkers. And they injected gut bacteria into their stomachs that had been collected from the poos of either standard mice or two healthy young women. Right. And so after these germ-free mice received the gut bacteria, instead of all having sinkers like they did before, about half of them started to produce floaters. And closer analysis of the floaters revealed that they contained various types of gut bacteria that are known to release lots of gas. 
Wow. So this is the most definitive proof yet that whether poos float depends on what kinds of gut bacteria an individual has and how much gas is produced by that bacteria. So we don't know yet whether, say, vegetarians have more floaters than non-veggies. Or, no, or like... I mean, this is, a, this is a really understudied area, Rowan. Maybe, yeah. you could, um, maybe you could be a guinea pig. Well, they do have better, better gut health. You know, it's better for your bowel health to to have a vegetarian diet. So this may be we're starting to get to, uh, you know, another mechanism of it. Um, mm. What about the proportion of floaters and sinkers generally? Do we know what that is? Um, not really. There was one small survey that found that about ten to fifteen percent of people consistently produce floaters. And the rest typically produce sinkers, but right. no one has really done any detailed research on this. Uh, well, any any prospective PhD student is a really attractive PhD <laughs> there. What about whether it's healthier? Because I've been sort of assuming basically that it's healthier to do a floater than a sinker, but do we know that? No, that's also something we don't know um, because right. whether you do floaters or sinkers, it might depend on what you eat. You know, like if you're vegetarian or what, whatever. Yeah, but. You know, it could also depend on your genetics or whether you're born by a cesarean section and your environment, because right. all these factors can influence your mix of gut bacteria. So I think, yeah, basically just need a lot more research to find out, well, firstly, exactly which gut bacteria are producing the gas that makes some poos float, and then whether it's healthy or not to have higher levels of these specific microbes. Right, well, that was enlightening. Yeah. <laughs> That's all for this week. Thanks to our guests, Madeline Cuff, Leah Crane, Alice Klein and Sam Wong. And thanks to you for listening. Do help support our journalism by subscribing so you don't miss out. And do tell everyone about our show. And we'll see you next week. Bye for now. Bye. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.